Joined today by Andrea Haverkamp, PhD candidate in environmental engineering at Oregon State University and president of Graduate Employee Union Coalition of Graduate Employees, AFT Local 6069. And we're going to have a really fun conversation and kick off our book chat series on the book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McAlevey. So I think this is going to be really good. And also I'll just say like uh, from the beginning, for me, this book was a huge resource and like early manual in my labor organizing experience. I used it heavily as an in- inspiration and just as like lessons for when I first started cutting my teeth organizing and feeling like I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So fun to revisit it. The way that this book chat's going to work is we're just going to read the book in segments. And so today we're going to discuss chapters one and two. And there's seven total chapters of the book. And Andrew and I are just going to share our insights, opinions around it, things we learned, and maybe things we also like disagreed with and probably meander and go wherever we want to go. So to begin with chapters one and two, for me, my main takeaways, like my main summary of the book is that this is really where McAlevey lays the foundation for her arguments, which is namely that the means by which we organize manifest themselves in the ends and the results that we have. And she thinks that the power of unions has declined at least since the 60s, if not earlier, largely because of a shift in methods where instead of doing a deep organizing model, unions and like labor leadership had opted for what she calls a shallow mobilizing model. And sometimes at worst, even an advocacy model. And the, pro- the largest problems with those models largely rest in their inadequate theory of power. And in their inadequate theory of power, misunderstanding that the key agents for social change are workers in the working class. That's what I took away from it as like a summary. What do you think, Andrew? What am I missing or what would you like to add? One thing that I think really framed the book really well at the beginning is I believe she mentions that the tools of labor's success have not changed. And so the reason why labor is framed is on the defensive or losing or numbers are dwindling isn't because somehow some new radical problem emerged. It's just that we literally shifted our strategy in organizing in bad ways. And we need to get back to the basics, which is, like you said, it's an analysis of power that really puts workers in the center. And it's a theory of change that, um, I guess, decenters the corporate boardroom and recenters every part of the worker's life. So yeah, chapter one was a great introduction to all of the key arguments. And I think it really, uh, you know, for me, this is my first time really reading a organizing book um, and really getting some theory. And, you know, she writes in a really nice academic style that is rich uh, and heady, but it takes you really fun places so far. Well, the two things that you said too remind me of arguments in her book. And one is like the question of why is this the first organizing book you've encountered considering your lengthy and decorated career in academia and studying social justice topics and books? And two, the, the highlighting of how our research and strategies often rotate around just analyzing the corporate boardrooms 
which she's talking about is like a manifestation of like a weak theory of power where basically we it's like a top-down elite view of how things change, right? The world changes because elites change and like their corporate boardrooms change, not like the bottom-up model. She really charted out the history of the current situation that labor is in right now really well through the sort of co-coordinated treaty, supposed peace treaty between labor and business and government in World War II era, uh, Taft-Hartley in that era, then the big McCarthy scare that a lot of labor leaders, in order to save their own hides or advance their own personal um, machismo, bought into and would use the leftists, use their tactics, then throw them out with the dishwater. And to make sure the unions were business friendly so as to not be demonized um, by, I think, a lot of rightful fear. But, uh, right, that was a fear-based strategy instead of a uh, a worker-based strategy. And I really find, find her compelling her uh, division of what is new labor and what is sort of the old paradigm of labor. And the new labor are service unions. New labor are the nurses, the educators. It's an overwhelmingly a uh, woman, a uh, woman of color, especially dominated workforce that is unionized and that is the um, that is the target of big unions such as SEIU and contrasts the tactics and strategies and gains and losses of new labor against the strategies of primarily uh, the CIO. Yeah, right. Yeah, because she identifies new labor not just in sectors of workforces, but in the leadership of the labor movement which she clearly has not much love for, right? And I would say, it seems like to me, I can't remember if it's chapter one, she really starts digging into Alinsky or not, but the two biggest like villains of her book throughout are Andy Stern and Saul Alinsky. She really has no oh, love for yeah. him. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, as someone who has been uh, knee deep in my labor union for years, yet had no real background right like i'm i'm i am the worker who got involved on her own volition for her and her coworkers and for my community but i don't have any background i'm just learning about sololinsky and it makes so much sense like it it's so helpful as a new hopeful organizer uh moving into this to, to just know how we got here. Yeah. Well, maybe we should talk a little bit about how she says we got here. So you mentioned it a little in that there was an old paradigm and it was like the CIO approach, the Congress of Industrial Organizations and the kind of what she calls structure-based organizing model or bounded constituencies that they, you know, rooted their strategies in. And fast forwards that up to the new labor era, which is like dominated by more top-down run mobilizing approach unions like SEIU run by Andy Stein. Um, she really focuses a lot of attention on kind of the beginning of the rift in the CIO era of like the 30s, 40s. And, you know, at the end of the 40s, the CIO basically was defeated by the AFL and then absorbed by them. And now we have the AFL-CIO. So then for her, that's kind of the key moment and she arrest, she places a lot of blame on the founder of the CIO, John L. Lewis, largely because she said he was like a real kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of Machiavellian, but like tactician of sorts of like he just 
cynically utilized communist and socialist organizers that he knew would get the job done and were really effective at what they did. And as soon as they like proved their worth and like, you know, did what he wanted them for, he would just purge them from the union. Apparently, there was a quote akin to like, who gets the bird, the dog or the hunter, you know, which is a fairly ruthless way of calling your leftist organizers the dogs to get you an expanded union and expanded outreach. There's a lot wrapped up in that quote by him. But Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny to me, too, because John L. Lewis so regularly features as like a heroic figure of the labor movement. Uh, the memory of him is often kind of a hagiography of how brilliant and progressive he was. And he's got these like really brilliant eyebrows, too. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of him. Um, I was actually watching some old propaganda films of John L. Lewis. I would call them propaganda films in like that literal sense. Like it was very clear that John L. Lewis and probably his like people made a movie in like the late 30s touting his like new approach to labor organizing and like turning him into some kind of god above men. Um, but it was cool at the same time in that it was like about how he was willing to like really look, go against the AFL approach of craft unionism, the the inherent racism of that style of organizing. Because if you would make your union model exclusive to crafts, it means you're only allowing skilled workers entry into the union. And particularly in the 1930s, skilled workers clearly by design could only be you know, white men. So the AFL was basically just a white, white man club. Um, so he was allowing people of color into the union, even women into the union. That was like progressive. And that's the kind of gloss that he gets in like a lot of the labor lore. So her kind of like challenging that myth and cutting into it, or maybe not just like completely cutting into it, but at least highlighting like, sure, there were some qualities that were good, but also like, let's not just turn this person into a hero. He had uh, interest, self-interest. He was kind of trying to rise in the labor leadership. And he also probably was part of the culprit of why we're weaker today than we would have been. And and I really like what you said that people like that are part of the reason because on page 18, right, uh, she writes that um, much labor history and analysis focus on external factors to explain union decline, the employer offensive, hostile courts, globalization, automation, and a changing employment structure, ignoring strategy and methods for engaging workers. This book focuses on something that movement actors can actually and easily control their own strategy. So it's a great way of not externalizing our own problems and saying, you know, woe is us. We have the the cards stacked against us. It's like, no, here's what we can control, which is our strategy. And here's how since the 1970s, it's been run through corporate campaigns, corporate pressure campaigns, visibility, um, death by a thousand uh, TV spots and press releases (laughs) and petitions. Uh, You know, she writes that uh, corporate campaigns continue to locate the fight in the economic arena um, with you know a new army of college-educated professional union staff who bypass the strike and devise other tactics. Workers are no longer essential to their own liberation. Yeah, I think I do tend to lay the most blame on bosses and capitalism and the capitalist defense for like why we are weaker. However, I appreciate that she also roots that 
we've abandoned these deep organizing strategies too. And there's a history there. And the way I usually put it is that the summary of that history in the United States labor movement is that there was a left wing and a right wing of the labor movement from the very beginning, you know, of like formalized unions, such as the AFL, and the right wing defeated the left wing. They defeated them and crushed them, and we're still operating under the conditions of that defeat. But, you know, I, but I do appreciate the hope, too, that she says when you start adopting solid strategies for organizing, you can quickly start seeing effects and start winning and get back on path and on the right track. So it's not like pure cynicism coming from her. And what she talks about are the is that right track uh, blends into the title. If listeners haven't, you know, really connected the two, it became really apparent to me by the end of the introduction. Right? It's called the book is called No Shortcuts, and kind of similar to what we've been talking about. There are so many different reasons and thoughts about how maybe we should change. Right? Cell phones are a thing now. Uh, service workers are. The biggest portion of our economy, um, right? But that what is tried and true 100 years ago is tried and true, and that is organizing with analysis of power that is worker-centered and that favors actual organizing over mobilizing. And I think that that distinction, those are my two favorite concepts to play with coming out of the first two chapters, which is worker-centered or, or whole worker, right? Whole worker organizing, pardon that, whole worker organizing and the difference between advocacy, mobilization, and organizing. Yeah, maybe we should actually uh, define those concepts for listeners really quick. It's like the advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing. She really makes it easy for you in terms of definition because she's all about just succinctly defining things and creating charts and such. Oh, yeah, the charts. But, yeah, there's, Page like 11. That's right. Yeah, there's some great charts for these terms, but the advocacy approach, as she defines it, is an approach that's largely has an elite theory of power. And she writes that advocacy groups tend to seek one-time wins or narrow policy changes, often through court systems or backroom negotiations that do not permanently alter the relations of power. I think um, for any of our listeners that come from the kind of academies lingo that they love to create three words for one word. Uh, you probably heard like the nonprofit industrial complex. I think that that's largely what she's talking about with the advocacy approach. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, she says that that's their theory of power, right? Uh, through backroom deals and negotiations that do not permanently alter power. And that strategy is litigation, polling, advertising, paid media. So think of a time that you've seen on the internet, like, click this petition and tell them to do XYZ or please donate to this nonprofit fund who lobbies to make your life better. Now, the mobilizing approach, she says, is better than the advocacy approach in a lot of ways, but it still primarily has an elite theory of power, meaning that the changes within elite structures is what like trickles down. You can almost call it like trickle-down power theory. And that it's largely staff and like self-selecting activists that set the strategies that develop the analysis of power and develop the plans of approach and kind of run the campaign. And at best, what they do is launch and initiate like mass mobilizations of people that kind of serve as 
press, you know, and like the public image and sheen of the campaign. But underneath that, they're not really actually meaningfully participating in the campaign beyond just like holding picket signs here and there and taking like pictures of themselves to put online. Do you have anything to add to that? Oh, what I really like about uh, the mobilizing approach is that it they they really talk about who it engages, who is it mobilizing. It's mostly self-directed and it keeps dipping into the same pool of people who are already sold on the issue, yeah. right? So if you're mobilizing, uh, you know, your strategy is a campaign ran by the professional staff and volunteer activists, and they say with no base of actual measurable supporters, uh, it, and it reminds me of almost like click-based organizing, click over community. So you're you're set you're you're selling your message to the very same people who have already bought it. It's not reaching new people. You're not bringing new people into the fold. I, and I mean, I think what I also um, resonates with me about her definition of the mobilizing approach is that at the end of the day, it's sort of like the layer of leadership that thinks they know everything and runs everything and kind of acts and operates as if they're the experts in the room all the time. And so, you know, some of the worst of union strategies are ones that are like primarily staff driven. It's an easy criticism to leverage, but it's also an easy criticism to leverage because it tends to be true. It's like they're staff driven, they're hierarchies that like there's kind of a director behind the scenes that really calls the shots. And it creates the appearance of like participation among workers, but not like the meaningful um, participation in the plan and executing the plan. So, so now I okay. So now, now I see what I was trying to get to. It it was it was her uh, her difference between self-selecting versus structure-based groups. So if your union or your faith group is structure-based or self-selecting, and this hit hard, right? Um, self-selecting groups are usually single-issue fights, women's and other identity-based movements, non-religious community efforts, environmental groups, um, because the people who show up at the meetings already have a pre-existing interest or commitment to the cause. You know, there's small bits of passionate advocates who might be new or of fresh thinking, but it's self-selecting work because the people who are going to show up and be mobilized have already shown up and been mobilized for environmental issues, women's issues. Um, However, using structure-based organizing, it would deliberately and methodically expand the base of people who you can tap into. And she makes the argument that mobilizing is that sort of self-selecting rather than structure-based approach which organizers should use. Yeah, and a little bit of a tangent here before we define the organizing approach in her terms. It just reminds me of something, my impression I've had encountering other labor organizers and like labor activists is there seems to be a real reluctance to have difficult conversations with workers, difficult political conversations, difficult conversations around various issues. Um, and instead, and rather than having those conversations, rather than like digging in and like recognizing that the union has to engage people and challenge people and push us, push people and ourselves beyond our comfort zones often to win, they just try to take a shortcut, hence the title of the book, and avoid those conversations and just hope to like paper over it, make a decision behind closed doors, or never take on the issue in the first place. 
to give a concrete example, I can remember a conversation with a different union, they shall not be named, where a right-wing gun rights group wanted to participate in a larger activity that this coalition of union groups was putting on. And most of the people in the coalition said, no, we're not comfortable with this. This does not fit the mission and the themes and the values of like the activities that we're trying to promote. And that's just kind of known, you know, that was how it was defined. And these folks were like not willing to exclude this group or even have the conversation with their membership because they're like, a lot of our membership are really pro second amendment, but rather than talking to their members or talking to these workers, these leaders in the room, which was like one or two people at a given time, just decided on their behalf what what they actually thought about the situation. So it was just like a shortcut around like a real organizing opportunity. Yeah, I think I think that there's just there's a growing sense that a lot of that approach tends to come from those who are most in the collegiate professional uh particularly high expense liberal education group not always but i i feel like there is a tendency to assume we know better than other workers who should be a part of the of their organizing and you're absolutely right that a couple people making that decision and potentially blocking off new people new new folks, new workers who would be passionate about bettering the conditions of themselves and their community and engaging in real class struggle. Uh, right. And then, you know, there's always some pushback. Well, where's the line drawn? Well, the line is drawn somewhere because there is a line. It will be drawn and we have to just have reasonable, uncomfortable debates about where that line is and, and how it's placed and what happens when it's crossed. Um, but setting that line too far up creates that self self-selecting self-directing structure where um you know is it really the community's garden or is it you know these five people's garden you know and it can be the same way about a union is it really the workers' union or is it leadership's union yeah absolutely so the organizing approach which is obviously the approach that she urges unions to adopt she, uh, I'll just read her definition of it from her, her chart. She says, the theory of power and the organizing approach is a mass, inclusive, and collective one. Organizing groups transform the power structure to favor constituents and diminish the power of their opposition. Specific campaigns fit into a larger power-building strategy. They prioritize power analysis, involve ordinary people in it, and decipher the often hidden relationship between economic, social, and political power. Settlement typically comes from mass negotiations with large numbers involved. Um, And then the strategy section of how she defines it is that the strategy rests on the recruitment and involvement of specific large numbers of people whose power is derived from their ability to withdraw labor or other cooperation from those who rely on them. Majority strikes sustained in strategic nonviolent direct action, electoral majorities. Frames matter, but the numbers involved are sufficiently compelling to create a significant earned media strategy. Mobilizing is seen as a tactic, not a strategy, which I'd like to like kind of focus a little bit on that last part, that mobilizing is a tactic rather than a strategy. This is a critique that I've heard pretty often 
since the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was largely that Occupy itself was essentially a mass mobilization where the mobilization was in and of itself the strategy. Like there was nothing beyond just like mobilizing huge numbers of people, but for what, right? Like no demands. That's the kind of thing. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how much I agree to be honest, but that's definitely the criticism. I mean, the, 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 just while I'm laughing, the reason why I'm laughing is like, I'm sure that I'm not the only one who remembers how almost laughable the news coverage was. Cause it basically boiled down to who are these people? What do they want? They don't have a leader. And right, that came from the right wing, but it slowly became echoed by the left wing. It was like, come on, can't you come up with 10 demands? What are your, what are just three things? Give me just three things you want. <laughs> like, um, you know, can you please just elect one person? But I do agree that probably, you know, this was happening prior to Occupy, obviously, too. But since Occupy, which is, Occupy was largely the thing that shaped my political consciousness and like really turned me into a radical. So that's probably why, I'm somewhat reluctant to criticize it too harshly because it's just too close to my art. I'm just naming my you know, biases. <laughs> but I've definitely been frustrated with what I've seen as largely a mobilizing approach to like social justice actions. And one thing I can think of specifically is things like the, um, the Climate Action March. Uh, I think that's what it was called. Like 350.org and groups like that created this big mobilizing spectacle in New York City where something like 300 plus thousand people showed up and they did a whole day where they just took over the streets and they bust people in from all over the country and and then what? You know, that was like it. It was a one day mass mobilizing tactic that was supposed to accomplish something, but it was like there was no plan, there was no strategy, it was spectacle. And I think um her kind of identifying that mobilization should be at best a tactic, not a strategy, is really important for successful union efforts. Because if we think about the largest, you know, the quote-unquote largest events, protests that have occurred the past 20 years, right? Even, even expanding what you said, we can think of the Women's March and we can think of the anti uh Iraq war, peaceful demonstrations, both of which gathered record, just astonishing pictures and numbers of people. However, we need to think about like tactics versus organizing. That is absolutely a tactic. But what she says, mobilizing is seen as a tactic, not a strategy. That's not the strategy. A lot of people think that those are the means to the end, but it is not because that's not how power works. Power doesn't see on one day permitted demonstrations with millions of people in the streets and say, this is a credible risk to my profit making. This is a credible risk to my power. And therefore, I must concede power. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's something that probably appeals to activists from the mobilizing perspective is that I've heard this described as like the difference between organizers and activists which is maybe not a great like dichotomy, but in that paradigm, the activist is somebody that basically is doing something to express themselves. Like protest is almost like a branded identity where they go out and they hold a sign, they describe themselves as a environmentalist, you know, an activist of something that's an ist at the end, uh, but that is like an individual identity rather than a collective sense of participation. And 
I think when you adopt that kind of lens of like, I'm an activist, therefore I go out on the corner and protest and somehow that's, and I go on marches and stuff, it like, it creates a really shallow understanding of how things change and how you actually create credible threats to the power holders. But it's also really appealing because it's like, you're visible, you're doing something. It feels good to rally and be in the streets and chants and cheer and have like, you know, funny memeable signs. <laughs> but, oh yeah. Gotta have a picture. Right. And you know, I'm not, I, and I don't want to sound like I'm dismissive of that as, I mean, but again, it's a tactic, not a strategy. It is one of many tools. It is not the tool to rally our hopes, dreams, and, and organizing around. And that is, I think the, the tables continued on the next page between advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing for one last, one last thing that is important. It's very brief, which is the people focus. The people focus of the large litigation lobbying-based advocacy, none, right? You click the email, you're done. Mobilizing, what we talked about, which is mobilizing large groups of people for a, a one-day protest or, or a strike or to all sign the petition and, s- and send the email. That The people that's focused on, grassroots activists. She writes, people already committed to the cause who show up over and over. When they burn out, new, previously committed activists are recruited, and so on. Social media over-relied on. And all of that is contrasted to the people-focused of what is organizing, um, which is organic leaders. The base is expanded through developing the skills of organic leaders who are key influencers of the constituency who can then, independent of staff, recruit new people never before involved. Individual face-to-face interactions are key. That, that table that you just read and thinking about who are the agents of change you know, within these models, the advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing approach, it just reminds me of what you're saying about like the Women's March and how it was a terrific mass mobilization what I think McAlevey would probably highlight as like part of the limitation of it was it wasn't a structure-based organizing approach in that it was largely relying on self-selecting acti- activists and people that felt compelled to show up. But how were those people bounded together? What were the relationships that they held with one another? What were their constituencies that they, com- they were a part of? Um, the workplace would have been one of them, but this mobilization largely was just deployed in the streets and the streets is not a constituency. Like we don't have bounded constituencies in the streets um, all the time. Right. I'm not like against like, I I should, I want to qualify something before I keep like sounding like I'm not down with insurrection. I am totally down with insurrectionary models of organizing and these like moments of just fire. Right. I thought it was a great moment in time when that police station in Minneapolis got burned to the fucking ground. All about it. But I think like her critique of that approach would be that you need bounded constituencies within a structure to continue deploying like effective strategies for change. I totally agree. Like that insurrection is one of best tactics we have to take back power. And to go back to it, things like the Women's March would be a powerful tactic, but it in and of itself is not a strategy. And I think a lot of people thought it was the strategy. That if they just had the biggest marches with the most people, with the best signs, that it would somehow remove the president of the United States of America. Yeah, and I mean, I remember, it's not just the Women's March. I've seen some other things similar where the conversations happening on the ground are like, well, we just got to keep showing up. Let's make sure that we show up again next week. 
you know? And it's just like, what, how long are we going to keep doing this? And, March in circles and then what? And it's, and it's entirely possible to hold multiple truths. One, be so inspired by so many people who have never gone to anything go before, but also hold um, a little bit of sadness for the potential it could have had if it was structure-based and relationship-based organizing that would have taken all of those same people and applied that same pressure and that same energy into the workplaces and the communities that they all share, right? Because you know there were, I guarantee, Starbucks bosses and Starbucks employees at the same march, right? And if those power, if, if the power between them had been explored just a little bit, I think we could have made some real change for women. Well, let's, uh, let's invite our guests to this conversation. Joining us, Sarah Piscionary. She's a labor organizer based in Oregon. And also, you previously worked for the Labor Education Research Center. I'm sure you have other accolades that you can tout in terms of your background in organizing. Uh, but we were just talking about mostly Chapter 1, a little bit of Chapter 2, but trying to lay down just the foundation of MacLevy's arguments and got through the advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing approaches. And I think maybe if you all are willing to go down this path, it would be fun to start talking a little bit about whole worker organizing. And Sarah, since you're just joining us, how about I invite you to kind of launch us into this conversation about what what she means by whole worker organizing, also, and but also just like what your takeaways are from it. Yeah, so I have to confess, uh, in unpacking from camping, I lost my my copy of the book. It's not in front of me. I did want to um, kind of touch on what what I I heard in that last conversation around mobilizing, um, and I think y'all touched on it. But the um, like the most important piece of mobilizing mobilizing acts as the inspiration. Deep organizing can be exhausting and draining and um, feeling like a never-ending uphill battle. And I think that those moments of mobilization, those moments in the streets where things really, like the, the fire is sparked, is so important. Like it, it, it is the complementary piece of deep organizing is mobilizing. Um, it's how we keep people engaged um, through all of the long, hard, arduous work that is deep or even whole worker organizing. To answer your question, Alex, I think to me, whole worker organizing is not accepting of um, the idea that we're focusing our power analyses on the elite structure, but rather how integrated we are in our own communities. Um, so the idea is, yes, we're sharing. A, so for workers, for example, we're sharing a struggle in the workplace but that struggle can permeate throughout other community um, associations we have, and it ought to. And actually, we need to be focusing our organizing work on making sure that that, that, that is the outcome. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that uh, definition of it. And I think that when it comes to like the kind of labor conversations I've seen and witnessed and observed amongst like rank and file members, it just reminds me of this tension that's very, very palpable where there's kind of one approach that believes the union really is about 
what people describe as like the bread and butter issues or just like the specifically immediate and direct workplace issues. The grievances on the job uniquely are the totality of what the union is about, right? But she is really strongly saying workers don't just like clock into work and then they clock out and suddenly they're an individual citizen in their community or whatever and that's separate. Like they're experiencing their struggle simultaneously. But that also means their networks that they are belong to in their communities are a source of their power beyond the workplace. So if you bring the community into the workplace, you're just expanding your base of power holders and how much power you really can build from the bottom up. That was good. That's kind of what I just think about when I read this book and what I what for me it seems like she's trying to argue in terms of our strategic implications is that we really need to like map our networks and our relationships to one another and like map how we belong to a community uh, and maybe not ignore the corporate community but deprioritize their networks. Yeah, but I think that that's a fundamental uh, flaw in the labor movement historically and still today, but it seems as if there is kind of a, you know, um, um, bargaining for the public good is starting to kind of, it seems like to some extent, pick up momentum. Uh, there's a lot more conversation around housing happening in, in union spaces right now, which I think is super important. Um, yeah, if we skip that step, if we skip looking at what power we have and just try and appeal to to an elite power structure where we're focused so much on who has a decision, who can make the decision that we know is good for us. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? It's false, right? Like we have the decision. The decision lies on us to make, make, um, decisions for ourselves and, and anything outside of that is, it is a step, but it's not the step. I agree too that it seems like there's at least some blurring of the boundaries around like what is qualified as bread and butter unionism, what's social justice unionism. You know, I think, I think at least social justice unionism and the deep organizing approach are starting to kind of win the argument in some spaces. But I've also seen like this kind of interesting like mental gymnastics around like these moments where people are like hardcore, like the union is just about winning this recognition, getting a collective bargaining agreement and kind of focusing on the workplace. But at the same time, we have to be attentive to like the demands of Black Lives Matter and racial justice. And it's like they still try to separate the things and say like, of course, we need to be better about racial justice. And they talk in the language and the parlance of whole worker organizing, but they do not embrace it. I don't know if you all have seen that too. Yeah, it makes me think of the Angela Nagel book that I'm reading right now um, on online culture wars, uh, you know, from 4chan to Trump and all of that. And I think there's some really good stuff in there. But I think one thing that her and I think a lot of other people, whether they're overt or subvert about it, say, well, if only they didn't try to have so many genders. Right. She says, well, the leftists kind of lost the quote unquote average people when in 2014, Facebook added 50 gender options. And that's just bad. Right. That's just a bad. That's that's not a that's not an argument you can make. And then, you know, well, you say that and then she says, you know, that there's 
leftists aren't able to reach ideological debates. But I think that being unable to see the economic marginalization and systemic marginalization of certain people as workplace issues, because we are all workers under capitalism, to, to not connect those two as to somehow be related, I think is disingenuous and it is a mental gymnastic. Yeah. I mean, I think that honestly, I think Nagel is probably a good example of the, the problems that we're talking about because her argument in that book, as I understand it, can also really maybe give too much credence and like lend too much materials of sympathy towards these alt-right teenage boys that like become you know, extremists because they feel so um, silenced by the left. You know, she almost kind of like, she she almost kind of champions that analysis as if it's correct, right? <laughs> that the the real Nazis are the people silencing free speech. I don't think she exactly says it like that, but she kind of like gets, there's moments where she's, I feel like she's like maybe being a little too sympathetic to suggesting that like, teenage boys in these like 4chan spaces feel liberated because it's the first time they're allowed to really speak freely and express themselves and the left just polices their language so much that it's actually oppressive yeah that there's a there's a whole other there's a whole other hour i could spend honestly dissecting elements (laughs) of this book uh which i'm i'm reading because it's it's relevant to another part of my my phd but i guess to yeah, I guess to to put the feather in the cap, I, I just got to say, I don't know why it's not framed as the left and part of the left's coalition of gender diverse people aren't the real victors here for getting a major uh, corporation who is a profit driven, vile corporation to at least add more gender into it and that they didn't take it away because of the backlash, right? Like, how is that not a win for... Uh, leftist activists on the, the topic of gender. I don't know. She she's very quick to throw the win in a certain court on these on these issues. Anyway, but so so as to say, obviously the whole individual and all of these elements not being connected to the material conditions that we live in weren't a part of that. And that's something that this book that that Jane McAlevey does really well is sort of say that if you're not somehow bringing people into recognizing that we are in a class struggle and that is one of the that is the political underpinning of why they're in the union and why they are going to come to show up for the union and and bring in other people is that this is all part of the class struggle uh she makes it clear at one point that that is part of part of what needs to be done is bringing new people into specifically the class struggle, that this is not just your wages, that this is everything. This is your church. This is your job. This is your school. This is everything is connected to this fight. Yeah. This conversation is just reminding me of um, the uh, sanitation workers movement in what was it? Was it Baltimore? The I am a man movement? Uh, You know, I couldn't say maybe maybe one of us can look it up online <laughs> I, I believe it was sorry I, I believe it was in Baltimore during the civil rights movement and what we're talking about right now to, to kind of go back to the inner like the workplace acts as the intersection of all of our different identities right like all of all of the struggle that we experience by nature of being ourselves is kind of pushed into this 
I don't know, goulash in the workplace. Um, and I think, you know, so using this, the, the sanitation strikers as an example, they launched as part of the civil rights movement, a huge campaign asserting their rights to dignity in their workplace as public employees of, I'm not, I don't want to say of Baltimore, I don't think that that's right, but some city on the East coast, uh, I think that they were able to capture exactly that, right? Like what is what is the worker experience in total, both inside of the workplace, because those those same sorts of um, outright aggressions or microaggressions or um, lack of recognition of a person's humanity is taking place in all areas of that person's life. And when the labor move and when labor leaders, um, you know, putting it onto a, a movement is not the way I want to frame it, but when labor leaders take that on um, as a pivotal, I don't even want to call it a pivotal piece of their organizing, but as like the, the goal of labor organizing is to bring people dignity in their lives. And the only way that we can do that is by recognizing people's differences and the way that those differences affect their lives every single day, day in and day out. Um, and when we take on those struggles as as fundamental to the, the working class movement, that's when we see major wins. That's what we need to see right now in the labor movement. And I think that's ultimately what Jane, Jane is calling for and others have called for in, in this idea of whole worker organizing or total person unionism or what, what, what you want to call it. Yeah, I like a lot that you highlighted, because I was thinking about that too, is how she talked about most of her experience with workers shows that people want dignity on the job rather than just, well, not rather, but like the priorities aren't always often just benefits and wages and like that kind of, you know, uh, those kinds of victories in the workplace. It fundamentally rests on the ability to feel dignity and have dignity as a worker. And I think what's interesting about that and her whole worker approach is just how much it helps expand the imagination about what unions can be and like how these how these forces can be mobilized toward and organized towards really changing the world for the better and really toppling capitalism uh, in ways that I find really refreshing. Like I actually earlier in the book, going back to like chapter one, what I thought was really interesting was, you know, before she even starts describing whole work or organizing is when she's talking about theories of power, she really explicitly argues that, the elite theory of power that you find represented in advocacy and mobilizing approaches to victory are liberal in orientation. And they assume, in her words, that the rulers will always rule. They basically assume the world is always going to stay the same, but the most you can do is just kind of tinker around the edges and get some like inches here and there. And by doing so, it just stifles the imagination. Uh, and then she goes on to say, when you blast that apart, when you start really enlarging what you think unions can be about how the whole worker model should be adopted, how the deep organizing approach needs to be taken, not only is it successful, but it also expands your imagination and raises the bar of expectations. And I do think that that's like so crucially important. And I'll just say from personal experience, I've seen it be true. I've seen people's expectations be raised when you start really rooting the strategy in the whole worker approach. 
Right. And I think, Alex, that's that really gets at the like difference between bread and butter unionism versus what MacLevy is putting forth in this in this book. And what is it? Raising hell, raising raising expectations and raising hell, something like that. Is that those ink like when you believe when your strategy is invested in an elite theory of power, you will only make bread and butter gains and they'll be marginal. And ultimately what we saw as a result is, and I hope this doesn't sound like an anti-union edifice because it's not, uh, but what we saw as a result is essentially like some bosses just being replaced by other bosses, right? Your, your livelihood is now put in the ability of your union organizer to win you games at the t- gains at the table. And that's structurally very flawed. It only will re- re- we recreate the system that folks fought really hard to change. And I think that we see a, a result of it now with, I mean, with our, with our union members. Sure, there was like a coordinated attack. It's still going on. But I think that our belief in this elite power theory of power is let us open to these attacks and why they were so successful in the labor movement. And it almost feels like we have to use some of the strategies in this book to win back power in our own unions. And that is, um, yeah, exactly. It's not any means an attack on the union movement. It is just what happens when the corporate theory of power shifts from the boardroom and into union leadership. That's why at the AFT National Convention, you had at least three or four, as I'm aware of, groups of people communicating between themselves, not only here in Oregon, but on the East Coast and uh, on the ex-campus forum and on the, the by all many by any means necessary caucus, right? There were multiple groups of people actively trying to throw some wrenches in the current goings on and the resolutions that were going to be passed that were largely symbolic rather than uh rather than strong you know and those are what do those all have in common that they are really centering the entire person and they're led by workers who know best what they need yeah and so the very the very tools that are winning us against the bosses are the very tools that will also change our union structures as y'all are speaking, I'm kind of wondering what you think about this just idea and that it's probably the case that the incorporation of the NLRA and then modified by the Wagner Act later, that really basically created the kind of management rights paradigm that we live under. How much that is really probably the material foundation that enabled elite theories of power to gain traction and take off in the labor movement? Like how much is it the case that relying on labor law or like having collective bargaining as a paradigm that under which we operate almost exclusively in our strategies is really just a manifestation of organized labor having like almost a uniformly elite theory of power, right? Because now lawyers are a part of it. Now, goddamn, both sides got to have a lawyer. And one side has much more structural access to a lawyer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think anytime any sort of uh, radical movement, arguably, but not for me, 
the labor movement being the most threatening one, we see these sorts of, you know, when a movement is institutionalized, certain protections are laid down to stop the transformations that the movement is calling for ultimately, right? To dilute the transformations that the movement is calling for, to accept incremental gains as enough. And it's, again, yeah, it's, this is what's hap- what has happened in the larger labor movement. It's what happens within our, our labor unions themselves. Um, I think it comes as a result of exhaustion. Uh, you know, in the case of, of the creation of the NLRA, right? Like a lot of people died for that. So it's, yeah, it's tough. Uh, the one, it's, it's interesting to me though, because when I look at the labor movement, why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I got involved, but one of them is it's the only like full institutionalized social movement apparatus, right? Like we all have to go to work. We aren't self-selecting into movement because, you know, or we want to engage in something outside of ourselves. It's actually not a choice. Um, and the fact that we have some institutionalized protections to ensure that that continues for now is great. But I, I agree that at the same time, it definitely hampers our imagination and our ability to see past filing a ULP as the ultimate. Can I swear on this show? Sure. Yeah, I've abandoned the whole clean lyrics thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, the ultimate fuck you to management, right? Um, that's, not, that's not at all true. And yet, sometimes folks feel that way. Management and the bosses and the state will always have the resources and tools to starve us out and to wait us out. And the protections that the NLRA gives us is essentially that. I mean, you all know that, like, even so, if a worker files a lawsuit against their employer, it takes sometimes a decade to see it through and any wages that worker made in that decade is deducted from the settlement that they're owed. I had no clue. Yeah. So that's the protections that our national labor relations act give us. It has been completely gutted. And of course it's been completely gutted because who oversees this oversees it, the power structure, the elites. Well, I think, I think there's been a really fun book chat and we should probably move towards Closing this episode, this segment, I would say, um, we're going to follow up with chapters three and four for our next segment. But how about we just do a quick round and everybody just share like their favorite thing from the book so far? Does that sound like a fun idea to conclude this discussion? Who wants to start with sharing? Or I, I could start if you all want and then hand it off. I mean, honestly, there's a lot in the first two chapters. I do remember reading this book before. The first two chapters were kind of my favorite because it just lays out her arguments so succinctly and clearly. But there's two things for me that I just enjoyed the most, and it's her recognition of like the theory of power matters, like the analysis we have about how change happens. It all like really is rooted in our theories of power meaning that if we have an elite theory of power, we think at most rulers will always rule. And the best we can do is like change some of the legal paradigm that we operate under. 
in some of the policies. But if we have a bottom-up theory of power, it means that we understand that the working class is the grave diggers of capitalism, right? And I'm becoming fairly convinced that that's how I, I think about things these days. I, I'm, I'm no longer shy about saying the working class are the grave diggers of capitalism. But the other thing I really liked is also just, um, we didn't talk about it much today, but her kind of like prodding at the idea in a lot of scholarship that separates organized labor from social justice movements, social movements, and really saying that that kind of bad dichotomy weakens our analysis and our understanding of how things change. So those are my two favorite things. How about you, Andrea? Yeah, I uh, so I haven't read it all the way through before. This is my very first time. So I really loved just getting some, con- like she made very clear, concrete, both through charts and just really well-written ideas such as, you know, whole worker, you know, like that is now permanently a part of my vocabulary that through figures, I, I really understand that um, if something matters to the worker through their community, be it their church, that matters to the union as well. And then uh, I also really liked how they really teased at the Saul Alinsky model um, and the sort of thing that's kind of ushered forth that the organizer should really be uh, should really do work, but not really be seen or heard and is purely a shepherd of sheep but that the organizer actually is a leader and the organizer has responsibility and that the organizer uh, is an important person, right? That they're not, not to say that Jane somehow makes them a savior, but, but they really push back on this thought that the organizer is some sort of impartial person who only maybe shows up to, uh, to certain meetings. But other than that, their whole job is to find other people and put work on them or tell them, okay, well, you're the leader. Now do it. Uh, it really puts some ability into organizing. I think it's some responsibility to be to be good at these things and to be specialized and to have those skills. Yeah, and I know that was just my reading, uh, and I think that would be good to see what what Sarah's thoughts were on that and the rest of these couple chapters. No, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with someone today about my thoughts on being kind of like passively involved in negotiations, and I feel like. Organizers work as the framers, like they, at our best, right, we can frame a conversation in a way that makes it progressive and, and in a lot of cases, imaginative. So it's funny that you bring that up because I was just talking about it today. Like, I don't know if this is the best. There's got to be some in between, right, where, where, yes, the workers themselves are doing, are organizing their unions, but the organizer is helping frame that and helping like continue that struggle because in acknowledging all along, like it is a huge responsibility to take on. Um, yeah, it's massive on top of work responsibilities on top of it's a heavy load. And um, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in these last, especially the last two weeks or so since we started with impact bargaining. And for me, one of the things that I really like, it's hard. I've read these chapters like three or four times. It's always the first two or three chapters and then I stop. Um, But one of the things I like is, is 
Jane's a shit starter and she's constantly pushing buttons. Um, so like the uh, new labor pokes at the fact that they're not, she says something like new labor isn't organizing the unorganized. They're organizing their own decline. And these are like these large bureaucratic unions that have in a lot of ways lost touch with their membership, which again, I mean, when, when the odds are stacked up against you in the way that they are in labor, labor versus capital, I feel for, for organizers of certain unions that are really, really large and they don't have the opportunity to really do that relational organizing that I think, and that I think Jane thinks, and I think that you all think this as well, like that relational organizing is so, so, so key to actually bringing forth this, the dignified experience of being a worker and the new labor simply doesn't have the resources, the tools, and probably the imagination to engage in that work in a fundamental way. And I really appreciate Jane just continuing to poke at that and to push the line. Um, I think she is kind of like a, she's gone rogue, but it's because she's constantly pushing that line. She's constantly holding it down. Okay, comrades, with that, I think we should uh, wrap up this book chat for now. And we'll be returning really soon. And in the meantime, we have a LaborWave Discord server that we're going to be hosting some informal conversations in between these recorded sessions and our book chats together. And we're going to invite folks to have like reading sessions with each other. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be casual. And it's going to be an opportunity for listeners to like pitch in with their thoughts, ideas, their critiques, their support of the book, and have conversations with us as we go. So until next time. Stand by that.